0: Welcome to Diary of a Professional Tennis Coach with Mark Gellard and Candy
1: Reed. Hi, Mark. Um, it's been a, a lot of travelling for you. Just give us an idea of this time where you are and how things have gone so far, please.
2: Hey, Candy. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us. As always, we are now in Delray back home, which is always nice to finally back sleeping in your own bed. It was a long flight from Dubai Um, as we uh, we had a tough, tough week in Dubai. I didn't do as well as we'd hoped in the singles or the doubles, but we are home now. After a 16 hour, I was direct, so that was nice, but it was um, it's exhausting. You don't know what time zone you're in right now and you wake up the next day and you're um, a bit all over the place, but it's still reasonably early morning here. So I'm imagining in about five or six hours, they'll start crashing. <laughs> it will hit us all, but uh, we take a few days off now, so reset kind of get ready for the next swing that UAE swings over so now you kind of want to reset now have a few days to refresh mentally and also physically because she's she's fine physically just a few you know player injuries you want to say but they're more just aches and pains from all the traveling and this stuff so have a few days to reset and then get ready to start practicing probably Friday or Saturday so it's probably four days of nothing um, I'm sure Magda will be found in the local Boca shopping mall. Um, Ian will be found in front of the TV, probably next to me. So Watching West
1: Ham football I'm club. Watching West Ham, I'm sure. When you're on the flight, I can't resist this. I always watch television and I know that I should be sleeping, closing my eyes, but I like a film. Do you like a film? What are you doing on the flight?
2: I do. You know, recently we watched Succession, which I thought was a great TV show. And I was in the uh, Equalizer Three. It was the movie I was watching on the way yeah. back. So, what's your what's your genre of choice?
1: Well, I love Mission Impossible's for the flights. I, lo- I watch any adventure thing. I hate uh, horror. Um, I like a detective story or a rom com. I'm quite a big rom com fan.
2: Oh yeah, me and Ian are a massive rom com fan. <laughs> I love that when
1: love guys, guys say that. that. <laughs> I was on uh, Delray Beach uh, commentating last week, as you know, and I was having a discussion with a producer who was a big fan of Notting Hill, which I think is my favourite film.
2: You know, I have to admit, that's a, that's one of the better ones out there. All I know is it cannot be a tennis film. They're awful. Okay.
1: Just they're well, awful. There haven't been too many good tennis films, have there? I think no. Wimbledon was an absolute clanger. Yeah. There's been some others that have not been good. And I think the problem is because... I'm not as expert as you are, but I know my stuff up to a point. That the tennis in those tennis films is so horrible; and it's painful to watch.
2: I agree, and I, the, the problem is, is that the regular person that maybe doesn't know anything about tennis also isn't watching those films either because they don't. They seem to flop. It's not like they're doing great, and
1: uh, yeah, we're the
2: ones that are the outliers. So.
1: Which is such a shame, isn't it? Because I have to say, I did enjoy uh, Netflix Breakpoint, which isn't universally liked amongst the tennis fraternity. But I have to say, I enjoyed Series 2 very much. Um, So just give us an idea. You're home now, Darrow Beach. You're going to have four days off. And obviously, we've got sort of the US North American swing now. So what's the first tournament you're playing?
2: So we're here for about, uh, we probably have 10 days of training now. So we're going to have a nice team here together because Magda now has obviously Ian and I But we have a a hitting partner, Conrad, who's an excellent hitting partner and coach from Poland, who's going to be joining us. She has a physio here this week. So it's a a week of a big team gathering and trying to bring some fresh energy. And then we will head to Indian Wells on probably around the second or third of March to prepare for that. It's always nice to get there a bit earlier just to get used to the conditions of the desert. The ball flies a little bit like it did in Dubai, actually. Um, So just get acclimated to that to that environment. And we'll be over there um, preparing for Indian Wells and then it comes back for the second of the Sunshine Double in Miami um, and then most likely heading up to Charleston for the Green Clay. Great tournament.
1: When you go early to Indian Wells, do they put you up or is that Magda paying for the hotels?
2: So Indian Wells, the setup there is, um it's its I mean, it's an amazing event, great uh, venue and really one of the most enjoyable experiences for all the players and coaches because this year also – they're providing every player with two hotel rooms. So this is the first time this has happened. So obviously it saves money for all the players. And main draw singles players are given a minimum of 10 nights of paid accommodation, which begins from, I believe, the 2nd of March, meaning that basically anyone in the main draw of singles, um, male or female, can arrive on the 2nd, and they will have their room paid for until at least the 12th. Uh, which is ten days or longer if they're still in the event. I think main draw doubles is five nights, and qualifying might be three or four. So, okay, uh,
1: so they're looking after you. That's that's really nice to hear. Right. Well, let's get on to our interview for this week because we're trying to make this uh, a bit of a theme, aren't we? Speaking to other coaches and other tennis professionals. And this week it was Carlos Martinez. He's the coach of Nicole Melikar Martinez and Ellen Perez, the doubles players. Also worked a little with Karolina Pliskova, who's doing rather well now. Your thoughts on, on Carlos Martinez. Do you know him?
2: Obviously, we see each other around. Um, but if I'm honest, I don't know him. We've not really spoken much. He's, You know, the doubles tour is a little bit different. They're on a different schedule to us. We're not sharing practice courts obvious, for obvious reasons. So I'm not too familiar with him. But, of course, I know Nicole. We've played her and Evelyn um, a few times. So often seeing him around and yeah it's you know it, it's a little fraternity I suppose more in the doubles the coaches have their other you know which is which happens in all uh, of tennis really the 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 different niche groups of coaches but um, I'm aware of him and I've seen him around so obviously he's doing a good
0: job with Nicole.
1: Okay well let's play the interview and then uh, we'll discuss it afterwards.
0: All right. So right now, um, mainly I coach Nicole Melikar, which is my wife, and then also Ellen Perez, her partner from Australia. I've been traveling with them uh, almost like, a, yeah, a little with Nicole. I've been working for over two years, two years and a half or so. And with Ellen, once I started traveling with them, I started working a little bit with her. So almost two years still. Okay. And last preseason in uh, last year at the end of the year, I helped a little bit, uh, Carolina Pliskova, and then uh, in December and all, uh, I went uh, to Spain to do the preseason with her. Okay. And then we were trying to see if we could work something out this year, but it's a little complicated because I have the two girls and and singles players usually require a little bit more time, and the schedule is different. And even though sometimes the tournament directors help with uh, scheduling of the matches at different times to get ready for the matches is different you know you always go warm up earlier and then you have Mm -hmm. routines and you need the space and time and sometimes to be running around so much is not so good for uh, the organization of the player you know you always want to be like calm and make sure that you can count on on the things that you want and you need and so I mean we, we speak and all but I mean, it's difficult. And you can't going. really
1: put anybody before your wife, can you? I don't think that would work and very exactly, well.
0: Exactly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she takes a priority for you. Sure. <laughs> of course.
1: How did you start working with Nicole, your now wife? Did you start when you weren't married?
0: Yes. Well, like, um it was funny because I, I didn't want to coach her. I was more like helping her on the side. I was like, I, I like the communication. I like the. You know that I could help when I could or when I when I saw something, but it was really up to her and her coach at the time to make the last decision. And you know, like you always suggest things, and and that's it. I mean, that's as far as I wanted to because previously I had had not great experiences with your partner and you coaching and working, and because there is a lot of emotions and you know sometimes. It's hard to control them. as you can see sometimes in the tennis court, you lose it all and you start breaking rackets, you know <laughs> um, But uh, with her former coach, uh, he started like stepping out because his wife also retired from playing, so he was doing less weeks and that and then she started asking me if I could help her those weeks or if I could help her more than you know what i was doing before we were hitting before i was like sometimes doing little things but i was still with my junior players that i had at the time and then we spoke about it and then she said let's try it and if it doesn't work it doesn't work i said like, you know what let's do it and then the good thing with her is that we have a very good communication and um, we obviously we have had times where we've gotten mad at each other it's normal especially also in a relationship it happens but we have been able to uh organize it in, to the point that we don't get too emotional already no we just try to calm down and try to talk at like civilized adults and controlling our emotions as much as we can and then being able if you're wrong take your ego out and accept it and you know like there's no need to fight if you really sometimes we just want to be right sometimes we have very strong feelings and even though we might not be 100% right we still want to win the battle but when once you realize you're with a partner not against a partner really <laughs> then really you difficult. can lower your ego and not fight so much and then <laughs> you know like it's much better
1: um, I do this podcast with Mark Gellard, who's the coach of Magda Lynette, and uh, he's always laughing about how much he and Magda fight. It's more of a sort of brother-sister relationship. And then we had uh, Xavier Pujot on the podcast last week. He's the coach of Anna Blinkova and said that oh, they yeah. obviously fight as well. And Mark was quite relieved to hear that. So I'm sure he'll be very pleased that uh, you and Nicole also fight and then, of course, make it up and and everything's Fine, but it is about having, I suppose, a growth mindset and understanding that maybe you're not correct 100% of all the time. And and that goes both ways, doesn't it? Both of the player and the coach.
0: Yeah, no, of course. And I think once we accepted that or once we understood that better, we actually stopped arguing a lot. Like oh, good. We develop, For example, we have, and with Alan as well. So, for example, if we finish a match and it was not a great match or it was a close one and you're very emotional, we said, we don't talk right after. You take whatever time you need. Um, and normally we have sometimes also timeframes because otherwise, you know, it's not that you take, oh yeah, I'm going to take three weeks. No, no, you cannot take so long. So you 30 minutes to an hour, you know, you're mad, you're emotional, recognize it, understand it, and then be able to lower it down. And then whenever you're ready, we talk. Because sometimes, you know, yeah, you get out of a match and then you're so close and you're like with this adrenaline. And it happens. So we said now, it's like, look, if you feel like that, we don't have to talk. It's not that I need to bring you here, sit you down and then tell you what you did wrong or not. No, no, just take your time, organize yourself, and then we talk again. So since then, it's gotten so much better. We have, again, we have great communication, I think. And important key was that, that sometimes... You want to make a point. You really want to, you know, make a statement. But you it, it's hard to time it, but sometimes it's that it's, I, I think in my opinion, is a lot of the times the ego. You want to be right. You want to make sure that they understand. No, something, if you lower it, and, and it, it, at the beginning, it hurts a little bit because, again, everybody has an ego and everybody's going to get hurt. But if you're able to manage it and understand that it's just emotions, then it's much better.
1: I think every tennis parent listening to you knows exactly what you're saying. And we know, I'm a parent, uh, a couple of tennis players myself, and how difficult it is actually to rein in the emotion after your child has played, either good or bad. And we know Mm -hmm. that the car journeys home can be pretty precarious places to be, can't they? So I'd imagine that you'd give any advice to parents, perhaps just take an hour at least after the match and and don't say anything.
0: Especially, yeah, especially if it was a heated match. The thing is sometimes... Again, we are competitive and, and and what I've noticed and from my experience I've seen part times are a lot more competitive than their children because the child is developing, you know. Sometimes they don't even know what competition, real competition is, but we as adults, we know what it takes. We know what we want. We know we see a lot of things clear, which they don't, but this is where I'm going, you know, like a little bit of uh, that understanding and intelligence might give you flexibility to be Organize your thoughts, and then the things that you say to your kids are better than, um, or more constructive than maybe, "Why didn't you do this?" "How oh, you had this match?" It's like, I mean, the kid is not trying to lose on purpose. Trust me, nobody likes to lose. And I, I, at the time, I mean, when you lose, when you're alone at the time, I was the tennis players myself, and then when I was losing, I was feeling like crap already. I was like, yeah. "Look, like you know, I lost. This is a battle that you lose. It's a fight. So you're feeling bad, and then after that, you go with your parents." which normally are the ones that you want to satisfy and your part your dad or your mother are not satisfied and then they tell you oh you didn't do this right and you do why didn't you do this you could have moved your feet better you look like you were not trying so the reinforcement goes down like it's insane like so then all of a sudden you feel like uh, what am i or who am i like uh, am i even good enough like you know so you start doubting yourself a lot and it was funny because I saw a meme the other day that uh in UTR they posted it. I think mm. it's a video of some kids in college or, or, or juniors, I don't know. And then they go by like I'm a tennis player and I have breaking rackets. Uh I'm a tennis player and I will fall and I double fold three times a match. Something some like they try to make it fun. And then at the end the kid is like, I'm a tennis player and my parents are always disappointed. You know? So <laughs> it's very common to see it and you know i used to run an academy in new jersey and the parents always demand a lot from the children which is good i want them to be competitive i also demand a lot from them but at the same time you want them to to develop you want them Mm. to be themselves you want them to be able to be free to make mistakes because if you're playing tennis and you're not free to make mistakes it's gonna be really hard for you to actually have that, that confidence to win or to be bigger than what you are no you're right. So um, I reinforce that a lot and Janik Sinner said it uh, in his interview um after he won he said I wish everybody had my parents which is something very nice.
1: And there's something to be said for that uh, with parents because you obviously need a parent at least one of them that is quite pushy up to a point where they're making you work as hard as you can. Perhaps not having uh, sleepovers or parties, uh, taking care of your belongings, and making sure you got water and your racket strong. But also, there's that line, isn't there, where you don't really want to cross it as a parent.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and I've seen the extremes of both. You know, sometimes you have parents that do everything for their kids. That of course they become used to it, and then they don't even have a voice. They don't mm. even have a decision about like what do I have to do. you know i think it's again it's a learning process and unfortunately the best way that we learn sometimes is by making mistakes but parents don't allow their kids to make mistakes you know and if they do they condemn them about it so it's like uh, let them go to a match without water you don't have to prepare the water for them go and then they're going to be thirsty or they're going to cramp and then you tell them after it's like look it's because you didn't take your water then second match they go again without water well like look if you if you if you don't want to compete at at the level that you need to compete you need to be responsible and professional about these things if you are not ready for it let me know and then we stop competition but if you want to compete i expect you to be ready you know but at Mm -hmm. least you know like not being on top of him every single time it's like here's your water here's your water because then the kid knows that he can count on you which is good but at the same time you're Creating dependability. I mean t- in tennis court, you're alone. <laughs> you cannot, oh, that's such you good know.
1: advice. Really good advice. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure a lot of people listening uh are taking that in. So you said you ran in a tennis academy in New Jersey. Yeah. Okay. And do you live in Florida currently where pretty much everyone lives yeah, so, in the United so States?
0: Because of COVID, New Jersey took a big hit and all that. And then I decided to leave the academy. And I came here to Florida, where Nikki is living. And then uh, that's how we started, basically. Because we were, like, um, talking already a little bit before COVID. And then I was supposed to go to Indian Wells just to be with her, like, to the tournament and all that. And then it canceled, and everything got canceled. And then I decided to stay here in Florida. There were some uh, exhibition tournaments going on here, so I got to play again, you know. I hadn't competed in a long time. So I was training. I was here with some friends. And Florida was very open. So (laughs) it was uh, definitely a... a good move for me. And how,
1: how good were you
0: as a tennis player? I played division one tennis and uh, when I was a junior at 16 I played a few futures 17. Um, my parents didn't have a lot of money and my, my dad is a tennis coach in Colombia and my mom uh, was a mineralogist in Colombia also but she in 2011 no 2010 or so she lost her job and all that and so it was not that we were bad, but it's still to play tennis and to compete, you need a lot of money also like yes. flights, coaching, hotels, food, you know, it's a lot of expenses. So I w- I wanted to go pro, I guess, like, or at least try to play a little bit more futures and maybe challengers. But then for me, the right move was to go to college. So I had a good level. I got a good scholarship in, at Western Michigan University and I decided to go um Play college for them. How did
1: you cope with the weather in Western Michigan? From coming oh, no, from it Columbia,
0: was oh my <laughs> goodness, it was it was definitely a, cho- a shock. It was, dif- it was difficult to deal with it. I ended up transferring um after a year uh, to Mississippi in school. So one extreme to the other. Yeah, and yeah, I, I graduated there, and then I did my masters there, and yeah,
1: very good. Um, so you've come on to a nice segue because you were talking about the costs and all the difficulties of being a tennis pro. So you're obviously in charge of a couple of doubles tennis pros. If you don't mind just going over a few of the trials and tribulations financially of a doubles player, because we know in singles, even at the top level, it's not that easy. What about doubles?
0: I think if you are around top 13 in doubles, you can afford like a coach, you know, like your expenses, you're not struggling so much. I I mean, obviously doubles, they earn much less than singles players. It's For example, a singles player in a first round of Australian Open, they get $80,000, you know, like it's a lot more. And while, while a, ten, a doubles player, it's less, it's a lot less, maybe 10, you know, or 8,000 depending on, you know, so it's a lot less. But um, when they're in the top 20, top 50, 50 Top fifteen, they're making good I mean, at least decent enough money to be able to afford a coach, to travel without an issue, and even to invest. A lot of the players that are uh, break through it, they start buying their home their homes and you know, houses and all that. So I think if you're hanging around top thirty, I think you you're all right. You're not making millions, but you're mm. having you're a comfortable. salary. Yeah, and then you can I mean if you manage it as Marley, of course, you cannot just start <laughs> doing <laughs> a fancy life, but
1: first class travel everywhere.
0: Yeah, no, but I think uh yes, top thirty. But if you're below that sixty, fifty, still a good ranking, but it's not enough money. So yeah. it's tough then to maybe travel with a coach or you know, like be able to Again, invest in real estate or stuff like that, you know, it's it's different because now you're not getting into a lot of 1000s Mm -hmm. or a lot of 500s. You're just getting into 250s and maybe Grand Slams and still you have to make past few rounds in Grand slam to get a good amount of money. But yeah, doubles is a little different, but still, I mean, if you're good at it, you can make good living.
1: Was Nicole a good singles player and why did she uh, choose to go pro in doubles particularly?
0: So, yeah, she played singles a while ago and obviously I think every player first tries singles. Um, But then she started doing better in doubles than in singles. So she started getting into better tournaments in doubles than in singles. So Mm -hmm. her doubles ranking started to improve a lot more than her singles. And then whenever she was going to certain events... Uh, she wasn't making it in the singles draw but in the doubles so then you stop playing singles and then you lose more ranking and also her body he uh, she had few injuries or um, setbacks that as a singles player you know requires a little bit more energy or Mm -hmm. more movement and stuff like that and she was having setbacks with it so then for her it made sense to just continue a doubles career
1: All right. And obviously Ellen Perez, you also coach their doubles partners together, but Ellen does still play singles.
0: Yes, yes, yes. And she was also pursuing her singles career until not long ago. And she was trying. She's a very talented player and all that. But again, for for singles, sometimes it requires a little bit more, a little, you know, in all aspects, physical, mental, you know, um, and it's not... As easy to advance, especially again, I, I think Ellen had a little bit of the same situation as uh, with Nicole, where she started getting into all the 1000s and 500s and all that because of her doubles ranking, but then the singles wasn't really catching up there. Mm. So it's a decision that you have to make. It's not an easy one, especially because sometimes when you're talented or when you have the skills, you might see the possibility to make it at a certain level. And um, before, for example, she had the goal to be top 100. Because she saw herself that she could do it, because she has beating players in the top hundred before. Um, but then it was a matter of maybe sacrificing the, the doubles, like uh, and then okay, so then you don't need to play so much doubles, and you have to go back and then play maybe some one twenty fives and mm. you know uh, lower level tournaments, and then try in the singles, and and then obviously you're not gonna do so many points in doubles, so you're gonna lose your ranking in doubles. But now if you're top 20 in doubles or top, you know, last year she got to even top 10, you are making around 30,0, $400,000. And then if you are playing 125s in singles, you're really not making that much money. So it's also a financial commitment. It's like, what do you prefer? Mm-hmm. Um, try in singles? Because again, you can try, but th- there's no guarantee that you're going to make it. I mean, you might feel it and then you, but you have to actually put on the effort and also, I think it's important as a singles player to have good guidance, again, a good coach to maybe go with you and all that. And that also costs money. And if you're not making enough, then, you know, it's difficult. So, yeah, it was difficult, I guess, a decision. But at the end, she was like, you know what? In doubles, I have the chance to maybe win a Grand Slam or become top five, even number one in the world. While in singles, I'm aiming for maybe top hundred. So what do you prefer to be, like a Grand Slam champion in doubles or a top 100 in singles? My opinion, I mean, you win a Grand Slam, you at least have the trophy at home. Top 100 in singles. I've known so many players and friends that were top 100, but nobody really.
1: Yeah, you don't have much to show for it. A lot of people who play club tennis are playing doubles. For me, it's a personal preference. I just prefer it over singles. I like the social aspect. And it seems like a professional doubles player, it's a lot more fun as a life. Would you agree with that?
0: I think so. I mean, definitely, um, you can't up. It's a team uh, game now, you know, so it, I guess it depends also on your personality, because again, a lot of these players have played tennis their whole life and they were pursuing a singles career first. So a lot of them, a lot of singles players, and I don't mean this in a bad way at all, but a lot of them are very selfish, a little yeah. like self-centered. They have so, to be, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of like part of the sport. You have to um but uh when you make that transition sometimes it takes a little bit of time that is not really just up to you anymore you know like it's your team and now you have to be flexible and you you know you have to count on your partner and then you need to understand that each of you are going to make mistakes and that's completely normal you cannot blame them you cannot be mad about it because again you're supposed to trust your partner And you're supposed, like, the reason you ask them out or, like, the reason you are partnering with them is because you believe that their game is going to complement yours and you're going to do well. But at the same time, you know, again, you have that reinforcement for so many years being a singles player, like, Mm -hmm. oh, how can you do this? Or, how, you know, like, so, again, it's a process where you start understanding these things. And then you become a little bit more flexible, a little bit more of a team player, and, and and understandable. And I think things flow better that way. But you still sometimes see a lot of players that are kind of like in this straight-up mindset, it's like "Oh, you're screaming over." It's like no, no, you know, like I've seen some other players that are like, "Why do you talk like that about your partner?" You know, it's doubles again. If you don't like them, then break up and then find somebody that. You, but don't do that, you know. Um, <laughs>
1: We do see that yeah, a lot, but, don't we, that um, both the AGP and the WTA seems to have a, a lot of splits with the doubles teams. Why do you think that is? And why do you think that Nicole and Ellen have stayed together for a couple of years and have done well together?
0: Uh, I think it's, it's just like a relationship. I think doubles, in a sense, it's a little bit like dating. You start going out with a person and then at the beginning it's all nice and, you know, or maybe you you get it all together and then it, it feels good. But then after six months, then you realize that maybe it's not working out so well. And then, you know, or even less than that. Sometimes some partners, they get together and then by Indian world they are separated because mm-hmm. maybe they didn't feel the chemistry on the court or they didn't feel as comfortable. And that's completely normal. Again, it's, it's about trial and error. Again, as I said, is tennis and sports. You have to be okay with making mistakes. You cannot be afraid to risk. You cannot be afraid to go for that shot or you know anything like that because if you're afraid again doubting in a sport like tennis you cannot doubt these milliseconds of decision making and that also develops in your personality mm. if you're a person that if you go to a restaurant and you don't you take 30 minutes to choose a plate then mm, how are you gonna serve in a match point you know
1: <laughs> i like that <laughs> so, do you have any um secrets to coping with doubt because i think everybody does have some kind of doubt during a match. It might be whether they're serving out or maybe uh, they've missed a couple of returns and hit it late. Is there something that you work with your players on removing that doubt?
0: I'm very huge into behavior and psychology and, you know, a lot of those things, how the brain works is fascinating to me. Um, Doubt is natural. We always, even in regular life, even when you are in a, in your regular job or at a school or anything, you know, in a test, you feel that stress, you feel that anxiety. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes if you're not sure what you're doing, then, you know, like that's when that comes. A good advice that I normally give is like when it comes, first of all, I mean, you have to trust yourself. So it's a, it's, it's, again, it's a journey. It's a, it's a little bit of a process where you need to know yourself more than maybe the others not yourself like it's it's a it's a self-discovery way a path
1: Mm. where
0: you need to understand what your weaknesses are like your strengths and then in the in practice you're just hitting balls or you actually have a purpose and when you understand a little bit of that and then again in in matches sometimes your opponent is gonna force you to miss you know And, and 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 depending on who you have on the other side you're gonna your margins are gonna get smaller or bigger you know and And again, like if you saw the semi final of Australian Open in men's, Sinner was playing unbelievable, unbelievably aggressive in the first two sets against Djokovic. And Djokovic was making mistakes that normally he doesn't. And even he said it after, it's like, I didn't feel myself. But sometimes your opponent forces you to be like that. So it's self discovery. You have to know yourself well to be able to. and, And again, in a sense, it's confidence. Confidence comes through trial and error again, through competing, to knowing yourself, the more you know yourself, the more the more you understand your weaknesses and strengths, you're okay with them and you have to accept them. You have to accept who you are. And once all that starts clicking in your head, once that comes, you recognize it. You're like, okay, you know, like I'm getting a little anxious. There are breathing exercises. I'll do a lot of breathing with them. Like If you're feeling anxious or nervous in that moment, understand it. Fine. You'll be like, you know what? I'm nervous now. And there is physiological responses when you're nervous in your blood, in your endocrine system. There's a lot of things going on. Mm. So if you understand those things, maybe you can uh, take certain steps. Again, like, as I said, breathing or moving or bringing more blood to your extremities or eating, you know. Normally, a, a good one that I give when you're nervous or anxious in a changeover is eat something because your brain eats only when it's safe when it's comfortable is this is kind of like an instant. a response you know <laughs> animals when they're eating is because they're comfortable an animal is not gonna eat if they feel a threat you know because the brain reacts is for defense purposes and the same thing happens in the match you're getting nervous because you're feeling attacked because you know like you feel that something's gonna go so if you understand the instincts of it maybe sometimes eating something chewing saliva and all that sends a signal to the brains and all like you know you're safer so then you can think a little bit more clear but i think we all deal with it even you you can train all these things you can know yourself you can be confident you can be you know um, meditating every single change over whatever you want to do but you're still going to feel them is for me the question is how long are you going to stay in it is it going to happen for a couple points or and when it happens are you what's at stake you know like are you in a situation where you're giving it so much value that of course sometimes we give things too much value we don't want to lose them so when you put that amount of pressure on yourself it's very hard to deal with it It's again like anything imagine carrying around like in the middle of I don't know a terrible country in the downtown like a million dollars in your backpack you know like you're a target people are gonna like what is this person doing or you know so it's putting a lot more weight into you, you know so emotional intelligence comes into play once you start giving so much value you need to understand okay what did i do why am i here um normally when you're nervous or doubtful i have something once you feel that you're gonna lose you will lose yes so kind of like control those emotions trying to turn them around re- re-engineer your thoughts and like re-structure it to the point that maybe you can treat yourself or Convince yourself to maybe go for that shot regardless. So if you're doubtful, in my opinion, the best thing you can do is just hit, you know, obviously focus on your footwork because again, your blood is not really in your legs or arms. So you're gonna Mm -hmm. feel less. That's why a lot of people, when they're nervous that you see these shots, you're like, but how you hit that shot at that moment? Well, because there is less blood on your arms, and if there is less blood, there is less sensation. And if there is less sensation, when the moment you're gonna feel that ball or hit it, you're not gonna hit the same way. And you yeah. wonder it's like oh but I normally don't do that it's like yeah because you're normally not that nervous you know so once you understand these things I think it brings a little bit of a better understanding to it on the court and then you can make better decisions from it what was your degree and in, in your master's degree <laughs> it's very funny like this is actually my undergrad degree was in geology
1: oh <laughs> okay
0: uh, yeah, earth system science, and my my master's was in computer science.
1: Oh, so I was Data expecting you to literary. say psychology there.
0: No, no, no. But I mean, I was always fascinated about it. And I was always reading books. But because of my mom, I started the geology because uh, at that moment she was working in, with minerals and stuff and uh, mm-hmm. analysis of them. And her boss had a company, and he said, oh, look, this is a great field, you know, you can gas, gas and oil or, you know, like... It, anything there is a lot of demand for it so you will be able to be safe and here's the thing see sometimes we make decisions to be safe you know and 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 this is how I guess the system teaches you to be you know like always follow like a safe path you know like we condemn mistakes a lot which my opinion is very wrong but anyway and my master's again I'm always um, I'm also not an expert in technology but I always like to know the trends and I like coding and I like computers and all those things so computer yeah. science and data analytics I was gonna um, when I was undergrad my path was towards geophysics and analysis and there is a lot of data analytics in in, in that mm-hmm. area of geology so computer science was complemented that undergrad in terms of you know like learning new ways to Come up with algorithms to data analytics and to come up with solutions or automated solutions and stuff like that and and yeah, so that's why I pursue it. But yeah, tennis always dragged me back. It's not isn't for me. It wasn't so fun to sit at an office for so long.
1: I would imagine that your master's degree does help somewhat in your coaching career.
0: Yes, I mean you could adapt it in a sense. Video analysis and all that is very simple. That doesn't require a degree to do Good that. Point. And it's statistics, when you're trying to find trends and then look videos and in singles, they use that a lot. Singles players, they normally get packages with players' tendencies and where they miss the most and all that. But you have a lot of companies that do that too. And then they, they have their systems and applications set already. But you could you could actually apply it in the, again you see it for example in the in the Hawkeye uh you know all that is computer uh, based and then the visualization of it, which is getting better and better and closer, you know all that is programmed all all that is definitely something that I could have applied into, but I mean the coaching side of it, so it's not that I get to be in the computer for so long. <laughs>
1: And now we met at the Australian Open, Um, you were watching Ellen play mixed doubles and uh, Nicole was sitting next to you. And I just wondered uh, your thoughts on the coaching trial about actually talking to your players during matches or keeping quiet or when you know when to chat with them, when to give advice.
0: So, for example, in that sense that Nicole was sitting next to me, um, sometimes she does ask me questions about the match or what do I think or what do I see, like little things like that. And I like to talk to them about it because then they know what you're doing when you're sitting on the sidelines. A lot of people, I've had few people or even players, oh, but your job is easy. You just sit there and watch. It's like... Yeah. Well, no. <laughs> like no, you you're advising, you're analyzing, you you know, you try to sometimes even when they come to you, you have to give them three words or so for them to actually apply it and um or plan a strategy. Sometimes I'll tell them what to do. Like let's say for example, in a moment of doubtful, it's allowed now some it's a mixed feelings about it i think if it's allowed and you use it as a tool mm-hmm. uh in juniors not so much but uh sometimes i tell them like we have plays for example like i tell them go i formation serve t and ellen goes right and i said that real quick and if they're maybe don't have a, like a very short play or they're not short, i can see it better from outside uh but it's also up to the player if he's feeling it because for example if they're not feeling a T serve. Yes. You cannot force them to serve, to because, you know, but sometimes they, they, you know, a lot of the times they listen and it helps them to actually take responsibility of you. So then in a moment of doubt or a moment or like tough moment, if you make the decision for them, they just have to follow instructions. And if they lose it, it's your fault, not theirs. So it also, <laughs> It's also better on the player because it gives them that sensation is like oh well you told me to do so and i did it and it was like, yeah my fault you know like again and this is where i go you have to recognize like yeah my bad i called it and it didn't work so what can i do you know it could have worked in tennis it's yeah it's, nothing written, so. it's difficult but, yeah. and
1: also you need the the player to do the execution for you and finally um just talk about your coaching philosophy how it's changed perhaps from when you started coaching to now
0: Well, I started coaching. uh, I was coaching even when I was undergrad in college. I started in the summers with kids, you know, and stuff like that. And every single time, I mean, I I think every year it has evolved to the point. I'm very analytical. I like to see things objectively and I like to be efficient with the things that I do as a coach in terms of even with fitness and, and the gameplay and technique and all that. I like efficiency and and also comes with a feel, you know, I mean, it, tennis is not a um, rocket science. I mean, it takes time to learn. It's a difficult sport to learn. Um, But once you've been in it for so many years and also professionals, it's, it's pretty straightforward in my opinion. It's just the way that you can transfer a message or the way that you can feel it. Especially if you play tennis, it helps you to understand also the sensations that a player has. Um. And once I started in the professional tour, it's more about again uh, transferring that confidence and that sensation of uh, stability into the player. That you know that you have to be emotional stable. That you have to be you have to trust yourself. You have to go for your shot. That you're not gonna win every single one, but uh, but you can try your best every single time. And you know having that attitude consistency throughout the year because it's not easy again we're traveling so many weeks of the year and then you make a lot of sacrifices you're not with friends you're not with family you're not at your home um so a lot of the times and some players and, and i think maybe sometimes a little bit more in women than men because women naturally are a little bit more emotional again mm-hmm. all the hormones and all those things it's very true and <laughs> yeah it, it it takes a toll you know and and, and then you see players. Sometimes having weeks that oh, I feel worthless. I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. And, you know, and then it's your job sometimes as a coach not also just to do your tennis part, but to make them understand that it's alright that, you know, like you're here because you want to, you have the option. I mean, you're an independent contractor at any time. You can take a break if you need to, but also keep them motivated to compete, keep them motivated to, in a sense, it's a short Life because at mm. 40 or so you're almost done already, you know, so you can retire. You have time to maybe do your family and stuff like that, anyway. So, yes, with juniors it's very technical, is again encouraging and developing and repetitions and hours, volume in professionals is more measured, you know, like it's more quality. You can do a lot of you can do some technical changes, but not so many because you're competing most of the time. So it's more pruning, it's more adjusting little things and it's ma- make, making sure that you're strong, making sure that you're balanced, making sure that you can uh, feel good on the court, again, emotionally and physically. And again, the tennis at, the, at this point, these players have been playing their whole life. So a lot mm-hmm. of the times they also know what to do and your job as a coach sometimes is to reaffirm or to make them, make them make, make those decisions more clear for them to be able to execute.
1: So that was Carlos Martinez, coach of Nicole Melikar Martinez, and Ellen Perez, former coach as well, briefly of Carolina Pliskova. Any initial thoughts you had on our chat?
2: Yeah, it was it was interesting to hear his perspective from from a doubles point of view, and obviously he has a very tricky situation, being in a personal relationship as well as a professional one, which I'm sure brings a whole new array of challenges. Yes, but um, it's yeah, I mean it's uh, it's. It, I think that we're all going through the same challenges, just different times. And I think that he mentioned about not speaking to each other after matches due to the emotion for an hour or 30 minutes. I think it's a good idea. I think it's probably something that would be very hard for for me to implement because I think um, when the emotion is there, it's very hard to stay disciplined if you feel like... And I also think that some players... They need to have that engagement for that immediately after a loss. You maybe want to have that fight right there or that discussion. If you don't speak at that moment, it's sometimes players can feel like you're walking away or abandoning them or not wanting to face the problem. So it's such a tricky one because in theory and in principle, I like the idea. Um, And if it works for them, that's great. I don't think it would work for me in that situation or even with Magdub, just because, I know that after the match a lot of times she she wants to have that discussion immediately if I wasn't to, but but it's each to their own, and they have mm. a, an agreement if it works for them that's that's the most important thing it's that's that's coaching knowing the player and and what works
1: and they've got to keep their marriage intact most importantly
2: absolutely <laughs> happy, happy wife, happy life
1: that's what they say. I always say happy husband, happy <laughs> life, switch it because I think it's just equally as true um, and I'm sure. And then just uh, on Carlos's whole philosophy, he sounds like he's uh, obviously a very educated man, uh, likes to look into the psychology of tennis, which, as we know, is vitally important.
2: Yeah, and also seems like he could be employed at Roland Garros to help them with the rock formation under the courts with his geology <laughs> degree, um, which was really interesting. I, I don't even know what that really studies other than the oil. I, I, I think... Um, that's a lot about oil, finding oil and things like that. So that was an interesting one, but yeah, obviously very educated with a master's degree Mm -hmm. and a bachelor's degree. So I think it's nice as well when we have coaches on tour that have a different background or bring some different perspective, because it's so traditional that, you know, a lot of the coaches were just college players studying business like I did or sports, you know, management, (laughs) therapy, management, something, one of those, you know, typical classes that you get put into. So, it's good to have different thoughts. And I think that that gives, uh, you know, hopefully if he's involved with the coaching in doubles and, uh, you know, I, I think that it's good to have coaches with a different background that can bring some new ideas and thinking.
1: Yeah, and Melikar Martinez and Perez, uh, one of the world's best doubles teams. Hopefully we'll see them win a major. So we've spoken to Xavier Pujot, we've spoken to Stanislav kamirski and now we've spoken to uh, Carlos Martinez. And our interviews mm-hmm. will keep coming. And don't forget, if you're listening, you can always go back and listen to uh, previous pods just one final question for you Mark because I know you're very jet lagged but I've been really interested in commentating on Dubai how close all the matches are we've seen some massive upsets say Donna Vekic beating Aryna Sabalenka in the second round which was Sabalenka's first match after the Australian Open the matches I did one was uh, with Lulu Sun, a player ranked 181 in the world. She played one year, I believe, of college tennis. She took on Yelena Ostapenko. And the match was so good. Lulu Sun was a phenomenal player. And again, ranked just inside the world's top 200. And it brought it home to me once more about how good everybody, everybody is on the WTA Tour.
2: Yes, I think that the, if you look over the last 20 years, the gap between number one... And number 100 is really much smaller than it ever was. I, I think that um, Lulu Sun obviously is a great player. she hits an amazingly clean, powerful ball. she's a really tough player. So the gap is definitely smaller. it's more competitive and, and deep. The depth of the women's tour is so strong. I still think there's a still a very big difference though between those top 10 and the rest there's still a big gap there that people often say well it's you know everyone's about the same and the mental part is is what separates uh yes it is but at the top top level um those girls are just better as well so i think that um ostapenko's quality comes through mm-hmm. um, with her results and you, you you i think uh but but you're 100% right i don't want to um you know argue against that at all that the women's tour is as tough as it's ever been if you go back 10 years and go looking at the first rounds of grand slams. There's so many 6-0, 6-0, 6-1, 6-1. And that just doesn't happen anymore. And I remember talking to some players of the past, whether it was Martina Hingis and Magda mentioned Agneska Radwanska, when they've spoken about their time playing maybe 10, 15 years, 20 years ago, that they almost, the first three rounds or so, wasn't even, they didn't even have to engage or be concerned too much about those. They were kind of just a given. And now... Anyone can beat anyone first round. So there's a lot of upsets in Dubai traditionally just because of the timing of the event being right after Australia. Um, The way that the balls fly over there is a little Mm. bit different. The court speed. It's always for some reason Dubai has some slightly off or unusual results, which make it a great place for the players to go because it gives everyone a chance.
1: Yeah, an an extraordinary field. I think the top four reuniting for the first time since the Australian Open. So we'll see who wins that. Now we might have uh, some weeks off now. I'm off to Acapulco. You're on a bit of a training block. We will do our best to get another podcast out. But uh, listeners, don't forget that you can always ask Mark a question. We'd love to hear from you at Diary of a Professional Tennis Coach, which is at DOAPTC. Anything to add, Mark, before I let you go and you get to bed?
2: Uh, no, actually, other than one important announcement, I'd like to try and plug a upcoming webinar that we are hosting. Uh, and uh, Candy, you're going to be, we, we're grateful to have you helping us run this event. Happy to and, do it. Um, we're really happy because you're. anything goes wrong, we'll be blaming you. You're going to be the, the full guy. Um, <laughs> oh, great. On the, the March 15th and 16th, which is in about three to four weeks. We have a coaching webinar, "How to Coach Better in the 21st Century," and we're going to have a bunch of guests on there—tennis coaches, physiotherapists, psychologists—that are going to give their insights and really hope to inspire, educate, and inform the listeners on tennis and just give people some, you know, some interesting stories, analogies, um, and just discuss tennis and what their journey was and how. I, I hope that the value of the of the the discussion in the webinar will be that people can have some really strong take home messages and some practical advice that they can use in their coaching right away, whether you're coaching college or high school or pro or in an academy. I think um, there's going to be a lot of really interesting speakers. so please check out our link, which is available. Uh, on firststriketennis.com or we'll post it here possibly. Yeah, we'll definitely attach it to right? the
1: podcast. It's going to be really interesting. I mean, that's why I've signed up because I want to hear you all speak. I mean, you've got coaches that have been aligned with, as you said, Magda. You've coached Shelby Rogers. Ian's worked with Belinda Benchich and Katarina Siniakova and Alina Svitolina. And you've got Indrek who's worked with Kaya Kanepi. What else? What, yeah, are Indrek's a
2: fantastic physio, one of the best out there. He's going to be... Uh, coming in. He worked with um, Kaya Kanepi, the Bryan brothers, and he's now currently working as a, a private a physio for Dennis Shapovalov. Um, right we're going to have Cassiano Costa on there, who is a, a world renowned strength and conditioning coach with a big training base here in Florida, worked with the likes of Sloane Stevens, Tommy Paul, Riley Opelka. So really great speakers. There we have Nicola, who's an excellent sports psychologist. Uh, Craig Veal will be uh, joining us. He's worked with Jody Burridge and several players top players from the um, from England works with the LTA Consulting so you can find out a lot more information about the um the event itself online which we can we can try and post up a link and uh, I think it'll be a real valuable uh real valuable time for anyone interested in improving their tennis coaching or play
1: and that's the 15th to 16th of March uh what times?
2: So the times that we're going to run them is 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. So it's going to be about four hours. We've separated it over two days just so that coaches, um, as a coach myself, I know that losing a whole day can be tough. You've got family or friends or activities or you just don't want to lose a whole day of work. So we are going to um, have that available from 9 to 1 on Saturday, the 15th of March and Sunday, the 16th of March.
1: And that Um, time is Eastern, isn't it? U.S. Eastern time
2: is Eastern Standard Time. So we're five hours behind the UK. However, just to make it even more complicated, we need to check what days the time change is happening as well, because I think it's somewhere in March, isn't it? We need to check when the clocks clocks change. Okay. But anyway, that's
1: the time. We're going to start, regardless uh, of the clocks changing, it's going to be a 9 a.m. start on the 15th and 16th of March. And that, again, is Eastern Standard Time in the united states there is a fee it's not very big and uh, as you said mark i'm sure it would be absolutely worth every cent or every penny again firststriketennis.com that's where everybody goes to to sign up
2: and you can ask um,
1: mark and all the other coaches loads of questions as many as you want correct
2: yeah we're going to have it interactive so each coach will be available they're going to have they're going to present for 30 minutes or so and then they'll be opened up to question and answers. We, we want to make it interactive because I think one of the biggest or most important aspects of, a, of an event like this is the ability to ask why, to ask mm. questions. On Traditionally, conferences are a little bit too, for me, a little bit too um, stiff. They're not flexible. And so asking why is how I learn everything I did. Why are we doing this exercise? Why are we not playing that tournament? Why are you changing that technique? So I think that it will give people listening, participants, a real great opportunity to engage with the speakers and try and dig deeper into certain aspects of the game.
1: Brilliant. I cannot wait. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for all the information. And we'll do this again as soon as we possibly can. All the best.
2: Thanks, Candy. Thanks, everyone, for listening.